Hi there. Thank you for listening to Spotless, breaking the boundaries of television. The world of TV and advertising is evolving quickly. The largest content creators, distributors, and brands are all vying for new ways to engage the next generation of viewers. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. Consumer behaviors of the next two years will decide the winners and losers of the next two decades. Now here's our host, Michael Shields, GM of Advanced Advertising at Triple Lift. Julie Detralia is the Vice President and Head of Research and Insights at Hulu, where she oversees the company's research teams in ad sales, consumer marketing, and user experience. Detralia leads the development, design, and implementation of all research initiatives at Hulu, advising business leads on sales strategy, consumer insights, customer acquisition, and product design and experience. Julie, we're so excited to have you here on Spotless. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Michael. Tell us a little bit about your background before Hulu and what excited you about the opportunity to join Hulu. Sure. Well, I've spent about 25 years in the television business, believe it or not, most of it on the research and insight side from more traditional television ratings to the great internet experiment of the late 90s into the early 2000s. Uh, I landed at NBC Universal in about 2001, and I spent the bulk of my career there, about 15 years. Um, and I started on the TV research side, and then uh, somewhere on the mid-2000s, we launched digital you know, as a business, meaning that uh, we started selling ads on the websites, that NBC.com, BravoTV.com, et cetera. Um, and I had a little you know, digital experience from my pre-NBC day, so I sort of raised my hand and said, this might be cool. Maybe I can help with this. Uh, and it turned out to be a great decision because uh, it sort of felt like an entrepreneurial sort of startup within a big media company. And we had to figure out how to make this thing work. And it wasn't very long after that, that NBC Universal bought iVillage, which brought a lot of sort of digital expertise and DNA into the business. Um, and then also launched with full episodes online and around the same time, uh, the great Hulu experiment, which back then was, um, you know, a, a hedge to sort of protect against what was happening with content being uh, spread on YouTube. Um, and it was launched by NBC and Fox at the time. And so my team did a lot of research around what that might mean for the core television business um, and what that might look like, you know, as a consumer offering. I don't think anybody expected to be as successful initially as it was, and then Disney got on board um, the following week. And for the remainder of my time at NBC, I spent a lot of time on the digital side and streaming and really understanding you know, the consumer desire for that kind of access to content. Um, and then you know, a few of my colleagues had gone over to Hulu um, and it was time to think about something new. And you know, I'm a huge TV fan, I'm a big TV consumer. I watch a lot of streaming TV, I love TV, I sort of, Grew up watching a lot of TV. I still get my best recommendations from my mom, you know, who taught me all the best TV when I was growing up. Um, so it seemed like a perfect fit. And so I came to Hulu about a little over four years ago, and it's been 
really the best experience of my career. It's been a lot of fun really building, you know, better TV. And it feels like we have a shared mission. It's a really amazing culture. It's sort of hard to explain. It's a, it's a special place and it's been a fun ride to see it grow. Uh, we were at about probably 12 million subscribers when I started back in 2016. And now we're, you know, north of low 30 millions. Um, so it's a lot of growth and obviously, you know, now, uh, fully operated by Disney, which also provides a lot of really interesting opportunities to continue to grow that business, both through partnering with our colleagues through Disney Plus, and then certainly on the ad sales side, building a huge portfolio of, of inventory. So you've really had a front row seat to the evolution of research and measurement. Um, I'm very excited to hear from you about what you think the future evolution is of measurement, but for table stakes, could you tell us what brands are coming to Hulu for? What some of the tools are uh, that you use in engaging brands today? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really evolved over time as streaming has just grown and become such a big proportion of consumers' overall video diet. Um, and I think that, you know, that took a long time. Hulu's been around for a dozen years. Netflix has been streaming for a little bit less than that. Amazon Prime. Uh, it's taken a long time to sort of prove uh, to consumers what the value proposition is, but that hard work has been done. And what that means is that there's just tremendous momentum around streaming in general. So as an advertiser, if you're not there, you're missing a big portion of viewers and consumption and people who don't watch TV in other ways. So I think part of the mission that we've had is to convince advertisers of that shift and to show them that if you don't put your money here, you're missing a very, very large audience and one that's different than those who only watch linear TV. And certainly, you know, advertisers have been spending on digital for a long time in social, on websites, um, you know, in a lot of different places uh, in that way. But this is some, this is the intersection, right, of, of television and digital. And it allows for, um, from the measurement perspective, just a lot more granularity in terms of what we can do to prove the efficacy of a campaign. Um, and from a consumer perspective, it allows us to build advertising experiences that are different, that are personalized, that are relevant, that are really commensurate with the viewing experience, which gives people choice and control, which is one of the reasons that they get Hulu in the first place. What do you think the next generation of measurement is? Uh, is? Ultimately, as a head of research, you're developing new tools all the time for marketers and then kind of convincing them of the validity of those tools. Can you give us a peek around the corner to some of the stuff you're working on? Yeah, I would say we're really focused right now on leveraging data. And that is not just Hulu data, but now being part of the Disney ad sales portfolio uh, they've built a lot of their own first-party data tools, which now combined with the Hulu data gives us a huge amount of reach and a, and a large amount of just information um, around how people are accessing content. Um, so we're really focused on building um, solutions that can measure an advertiser's campaign as it lives across all of the Disney properties inclusive of, of Hulu, but as well as all the linear, news, sports, digital, there's a ton of available inventory uh, across all those types of, of content. Uh, so we need to make sure that when an advertiser buys across the Disney portfolio that we can measure that efficacy. So it's really extending from both sides of the business, uh, the tools that we have in order to do that. And 
I would say that the biggest evolution in research over the last, you know, four or five years has been this insurgence of the availability of data. And when I came to Hulu, that was one of the, you know, most, most the biggest differences from my days at NBC because we had this access to subscriber level, level first party data that we can leverage in a variety of ways. Obviously, we're very uh, protective of consumers' privacy. We want to make sure that we can offer the best ad experience without, obviously, you know, sacrificing any privacy. So we work very closely with our legal departments to make sure that we're aligned there. But I would say some of the biggest uh, objectives that we're working on, you know, aside from just measuring full funnel uh, across all of that inventory, is also helping advertisers understand reach and frequency, uh, which is something that hasn't been available for a streaming property, right? There's no, or has not been, a third-party system that an advertiser can go into and say, if I spend X amount of dollars on Hulu, what does that do for my overall reach and frequency? It just hasn't really been available. So we've been working on you know, building our own internal tools to do that on Hulu and then working uh, with people like Nielsen to look at more, to, to be incorporated into their existing tools like Nielsen Media Impact. Um, so there's Hulu data in there now that allows an advertiser to understand more holistically. And we hope to see some of our other, you know, competitors and, and other uh, companies out there putting inventory in there because it's the only way that we can really show collectively what, you know, how people's viewing habits are changing and that there's a lot more time being spent on these platforms. And if we don't allow for, you know, a little bit more transparency into understanding reach and frequency, we're not going to get the, the money that should be placed there. The reach and fre frequency question is an interesting one to me, particularly in thinking about how audiences are transitioning from uh, the, the traditional linear experience onto streaming platforms across different demographics. How are you helping brands think about managing reach and frequency across so many different fragmented platforms, including those that, that, you, that you don't have access to necessarily, like traditional linear television? I mean, I would say that um, because those tools don't really exist right now, um, it is a difficult um, assignment for an advertiser to really figure out how to do that. I think uh, getting Hulu data into NMI is a first step because one of the things we've seen from that data is just a tremendous amount of reach that we add to a campaign. Um, so I think, you know, one of the biggest, that's one of the biggest learnings. Prior to being an NMI and even Going forward, we do a lot of post-campaign work where we can understand incremental reach of Hulu. And honestly, it's really less about incremental reach right now and more about just plain reach, you know, starting with a streaming service, make that foundational um, because we're reaching audiences that in some cases you can't find in other places. Um, so that those are a couple of the bigger learnings. Um, you know, I would say that I support the Hulu business for Hulu as a marketer as well. And we have the same challenges that everybody else does, which is getting at, you know, the full holistic measurement of a campaign. Um, so it's been a really great experience to be able to understand what some of our partners are doing, understand how Hulu is making this work and making sure that we make the same accessibility of um, data, you know, where appropriate um, and measurement tools so that advertisers can understand how Hulu works within their overall media buy. A consistent theme of this podcast to date has been 
the notion that COVID-19 has accelerated trends that were kind of unfolding over decades into a matter of months. When you look at the research industry, when you look at the data from the last six months, do you see certain trends accelerating and crystallizing? When we first went into you know, the real lockdown in, in March and April, we saw a lot of just behavior disruption. It made a lot of sense. There was people were watching more TV of all kinds, even in the absence of live sports. Um, and what we know about uh, TV habits is that they've been pretty well ingrained for decades and that there are certain cues that drive people to watch TV. Things like wanting a connection with people either in your home or sort of culturally. People use TV as a companion, something that's on in the background. People are looking for emotional escapism. And then people just have routines and regimens associated with TV viewing. They plan for time. I get home, I eat dinner, I watch TV. So what happened during COVID was the occasions for all of those increased, right? People needed to connect with the people in their homes because they couldn't connect outside. Or they, you know, obviously needed a lot more emotional escapism, or they were looking for information, you know, about what was happening in the world. So that's why we saw that big increase in television viewing. Um, and we also recognize that there was, um, you know, this need for a connection, uh, this sort of collective experience. And Disney did a few things early on, like their sing-alongs. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of, you know, live events that were happening to sort of bring people together to raise money. And those were really, really largely consumed. Hulu launched our remote co-viewing uh, product opportunity so that people could watch remotely together, which was really successful. Uh, Disney Plus, I think, just launched something similar. Um, so we saw a lot of that happening. Um, and then, you know, as the world began to open up a little bit more, you know, things began to settle in, but we continued to see growth uh, in streaming and that continues to this day. And obviously with live sports back and the weather getting colder again, I think we're going to begin to see the same kind of seasonality. We've never had a time like this when all of these sports have been on at the same time. So it's been interesting to observe some of that happening. I mean, I really think the next year is going to be really interesting to see how some of these trends settle in. Um, we were already having a very disruptive year in television, given all these new streaming services coming into the marketplace. And we already know that the consumer is primed to know what a streaming service is and to understand the value it brings to them. And they know the technology needs required to get a streaming service. It's less of a mystery these days. So that's why we've seen such, I think, you know, such quick adoption for a lot of new services or at least sampling. So I think we'll see a lot more of those trends going forward. Um, but just, you know, some of the other interesting things in COVID that we saw, you know, really in those initial days was we did see in our data that there were more devices accessing individual Hulu accounts, meaning more people were home. So more people were like, give me the Hulu so I can watch more of it. We saw interesting um, changes in some of the content that was viewed a lot, a lot of comfort TV, you know, like Golden Girls popped up again. And, um, you know, those really sort of like, formulaic comfort television shows so that people could just get their minds off of what was happening. Um, we also saw, you know, some of our originals, you know, really do well, like Handmaid's Tale obviously is a big show for us, but in between seasons, we don't see it in the top 10 or 15 and it hasn't had a new season in over a year now. And we saw that show, you know, kind of come up in the ranks again. It was because people were looking for the thing they hadn't seen yet that everybody was talking about and they started watching shows. And we also know that, in talking to our consumers, which you do on a regular basis, uh, people were looking for kind of a long extended 
experience to have, they knew they were going to be doing this for a while. So I want to watch a show that's going to keep me entertained for the next month. So looking for complete seasons, complete series that they could kind of dive into uh, to, to last for a while and, and uh, keep them engaged in something. There's so much to unpack there. So first of all, your discussion around consumer behaviors and why they, they access television reminds me of a lot of the research that you've dropped recently around Generation Stream and specifically how you define cohorts for Generation Stream. So first of all, for our audience members who are not familiar with it, could you define that study, define what you call Generation Stream? Sure. So obviously Hulu is a streaming service. So really all of the work we've done around understanding how consumers watch television has been around streaming. Um, but the world has changed so much in the last, you know, even year, two years when it comes to television behaviors that we thought it was a good opportunity to take a deeper dive to understand, you know, and deeply explore the behaviors and motivations of this audience. Uh, not just looking into viewing experiences, but, you know, what motivates and inspires them outside of streaming, uh, what are their other media habits. And the goal was to understand viewer expectations and behaviors so that we could better connect with them through content um, and also that our advertisers could better connect with them through their brands and through their, their advertisements. Um, so we set out to do a sort of foundational study um, and we worked with a partner called Culture Co-op um, and they helped us design the sort of overall methodology in which we first um, just did some sharing of, of information, right? Like a trend exploration. Culture Co-op are experts in trends in generational research and sort of cultural research. So they had a lot of great findings to share. And we obviously have done a lot over the years in terms of streaming. So we started there uh, and then we interviewed people and they helped us find what we called culture setters. Uh, people who are both um, consumers of streaming content, but also creators to sort of understand their viewing habits, their motivations. Uh, we spoke to about, I think, 20 people or so. And then we talked to industry experts, uh, people from Spotify. We talked to the man who invented the Fitbit. Uh, we talked to some people at Hulu, um, sort of understand what was happening in that universe. And then we took all of the information and uh, put it into a, um, a survey. Uh, we talked to about 2,500 18, sorry, 13 to 54 year olds um, to really understand how people are streaming as part of their overall TV. And again, this is, that was a long answer, but just as a top line, uh, we wanted to sort of segment that audience that we call Generation Stream into cohorts. And we knew that it wasn't about age, right? Because I'm not a Gen Z origin, why? <laughs> but I stream. And my television behavior has changed a lot over the last couple of years because of streaming. And we know that to be true. And, you know, my parents stream um, and they're not also Gen Z or Gen Y. So, um, you know, the, this, is a, this is a pretty universal behavior, but there are differences in sort of the volume of consumption. Um, so what we found is that 90% of that universe, the 13 to 54 year old stream, and then we split them up into uh, segments that we call stream only, stream also, and stream most. So stream only was about 37% of the audience that streams. And these are people that tell us that they get all of their video content from streaming. Stream most is the biggest portion at about half, 47%. Um, so they 
tend to default to streaming, but they also watch linear live TV. They love TV. They get their TV from a variety of sources. Um, and then the remainder, 16% uh, is stream also. Um, and these are people who default to more traditional linear TV and then augment with some streaming. So I want to spend a little bit more time on the cohorts themselves, um, because I think you guys absolutely nailed it with these cohorts. So classic streamer, curated streamer, therapeutic streamer, and indulgent streamer. Could you uh, define each of those for our audience? When we did the study, we wanted to understand not just those segments and the volumetrics associated with how much they stream, but the experiences that they're uh, trying to have when they're streaming. And through the study, we found those four buckets that you mentioned. So I'll start with the classic streamer. These are people whose streaming experience is most akin to what we would consider a traditional TV viewing experience, meaning that they plan, right? They show up on Thursdays at nine for whatever show or Back in the day, they did that. Now they say, turn on their TV every night at nine o'clock and they watch whatever show it is they're watching. Maybe they're watching something together with their families. Maybe they're working their way through some series, but they have these sort of planned routines. It's the most you know, closely associated with what we would think about for scheduling traditional TV. Uh, the second one is curated uh, streamers. So this is content streaming that sort of um, centers on what I would call more intelligent content. They tend to watch more global content, um, more niche content. It's more than just about finding entertaining shows. Um, it's about finding shows and movies that create some kind of cultural conversation with, with communities that are watching the same thing. Um, therapeutic streaming was actually the largest of the experiences, I think at about 43%. Um, and this makes a lot of sense. People are looking to be relaxed, uh, to be sort of meditative. Um, it this is nostalgic streaming, reminds them of childhood, helps them reflect. It's sort of easy to watch types of content. And then the last one is one of my favorites. It's indulgent because I think every everyone's had all these experiences, but this is one that's kind of, you know, come to the fold because of streaming, because it's highly associated with binging, right? So there was the ability to sort of marathon a show back before streaming existed, uh, but now you can just do that all the time. So anybody who's ever sort of holed up for the weekend to watch a full series of, you know, fill in the blank is really familiar with indulgent streaming. Um, so it really, you know, has to do a lot with that sort of, you know, binge related behavior. I want to talk a little bit about you, you kind of called out particularly in talking about the curated streamer, the notion of cultural conversation. Um, and specifically one of the big drivers, of course, of uh, uh, streaming in general is Gen Z and their adoption uh, uh, of streaming. People that were typically you know, defined as being born between 96 and 2015. Um, it seems like this generation is really um, demanding a lot around culture, around context, diversity or inclusion. Can you talk a little bit about your analysis of, of their viewing behavior along uh, those lines? Yeah, so we did just a, a whole chapter um, on specifically on Gen Z, we call streams of consciousness. Um, and what we found is, you know, really kind of close to a lot of the other research that exists out there about Gen Z. And you just mentioned a lot of it, that culture, context, diversity are important. Uh, they're sort of more worldly, I guess, is the way to describe it. 
Uh, they have a desire to watch global content, more niche content, and they want to see sort of full representation on the screen. Um, 60%, I'll give you a few stats, of generation streamers say they straddle multiple races, cultures, or languages. That's a big number. 68% um, of Gen Z streamers consider, consider themselves to be citizens of the world. So they just have this sort of much more global identity. Um, and 74% of Gen Z streamers want lots of choice in their content offering versus less choice because they wanna be their own content creators. And this makes a lot of sense. This is a generation that's grown up with on-demand content. The world has always been right at their fingertips. You know, the, it's the first time that someone can go find some really niche piece of content, you know, and obviously a lot of content that isn't professionally produced, you know, they're finding, you know, there's all kinds of mobile video out there that they have access to. Um, and they, they're, they've only ever known that kind of choice. So it's really sort of intrinsic to their behavior. Talking about kind of the cultural conversation, I think is particularly relevant this year in 2020. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit, Julie, um, because of part of a commitment we're making on this show, which is to raise awareness on issues of, of social justice and to keep the conversation kind of fresh and loud around some of the uh, social injustice that has been brought to light, a long overdue conversation uh, that our country is going through right now. As it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, have there been specific responses from, from Hulu, from industry colleagues, uh, from individuals in your personal life that you'd like to amplify that could serve as inspiration? Sure, so um, I would say Hulu and Disney um, have an ongoing commitment to support organizations that advance social justice. And we took a look into the investment in our team and recruiting to ensure that our audiences are accurately reflected in our employee base, but also in our content. Um, and there's uh, two partnerships, I think, that are probably worth uh, calling out uh, that are furthering that commitment. Uh, one is a partnership between Disney and the First Look deal with Colin Kaepernick that was announced a few months ago uh, to focus on scripted and unscripted stories that explore race and social injustice um, and the quest for, for equity. Um, and this will provide a new platform uh, to showcase the work of black and brown directors and producers. Um, and then also recently, Disney formed this new strategic partnership with a creative agency called Translation. Um, which aims to meet um, the brand's urgency to connect uh, with culture and specifically with more diverse consumers. Uh, but, you know, we, we've all taken sort of a hard look at the work that we've done. I think, you know, from a research perspective, we've spent a lot of time on our team to really understand, you know, is the work that we've been doing really amplifying all of the voices that we need to listen to? Um, you know, research has always been a um, practice that tries to get at sort of representative um, insights. Um, but we realize that, you know, we need to really understand underrepresentative audiences in a much different way. So as a team, we've made that commitment to really take a deep look at the panels we use, the vendors with whom we partner, you know, the, the, our employee base to make sure that we're hearing um, from all of the voices we need to hear to, particularly when, as a business, we're, we made a concerted effort to create content that speaks to voices that aren't 
always necessarily seen on TV. That's what streaming is all about is, you know, trying to provide content for more niche audiences. And, you know, you could say things, shows like Rami, for example, is a good example. Woke, uh, which just uh, started streaming this fall. Um, Shrill, you know, I think we'll continue to find um, sort of a, a platform for those types of creative voices that you might not see in other places. Um, and then, you know, personally, I've made a commitment to do some more reading and listening. And I've um, also tried to do my own outreach, like through LinkedIn, so that I could speak to um, either potential candidates, uh, for one thing, but also just people looking, you know, I've done a lot of career mentorship over the years, but I did make an effort to sort of focus on, um, you know, more underrepresented people. I, you know, I, I think for me, and we talked about this as a team, a lot of people didn't even really know that market research was a thing that you could do for a living. Um, we want to make sure that people understand that. And it's it sits in every sector of business. Um, and, you know, the more people that we get doing this, the better we are at sort of representing the voice of the customer. And we have to remember that the customer is a diverse group of people. And we want to make sure that we're hearing from all of them. That's great, Julie. Thank you for that. Um, we're particularly excited about the partnership with Translation. Steve Stout is also a guest on Spotless here, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing what Translation and Disney and Hulu are able to produce. I want to shift gears one more time. Um, everyone's talking about this period of time being the streaming wars. You alluded earlier to a variety of new streaming services co coming online this year. Um, there's often a debate around whether or not there are too many streaming services, but you have data that suggests perhaps there's no such thing. Um, what's the, what's the trade-off consumers are willing to make when it comes to which streaming service they'll, they'll pay for and whether they'll take on one more. Yeah, this is an interesting one. We spent a lot of time over 2019, I guess, in 18, as we knew that, you know, these big media companies were launching uh, streaming services to sort of replicate the very successful model that Hulu has had and Netflix and Amazon Prime, et cetera. And there was a lot made of the streaming wars. And I don't think they've really resulted in a big war yet. I mean, for the most part, um, you know, Disney Plus, Disney Plus launched hugely successfully in a way that I don't think anybody really realized what that would do. And to me, that was just a really clear message of what this product is. You know, Disney has an incredibly strong brand and it just comes through so well in what that value proposition is. And, you know, when it comes right down to it, some of the things we learned uh, are that, you know, there's really sort of four buckets that people think about when they think about a streaming service and consider what it is they're going to get. And those are, content, experience, value, and connection. And those are all really broad, right? So when you think about content, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. People want timely content, they want current content, they want the thing that everybody's watching, they want award-winning originals, they want their favorite shows, they, it's a lot. There's, it's a lot to fulfill for a consumer and it's different for everybody. Uh, in terms of experience, people want the thing to work, right? They want sort of a seamless experience, but they also want these sort of surprise and delight moments where it makes your life better, like remote co-viewing, like downloads, downloadable content and things like that. And then when it comes to value, obviously that has a lot to do with cost, um, but it really has more to do with sort of perceived value. So 
Um, if I'm paying, I don't know, $2.99 for something, it doesn't seem like a ton of money, but if I'm not using it, then it's not worth it to me to pay for that. So they have to understand the value they're getting for whatever price they're paying for that service. Um, and then lastly is connection. We talked about this before. Television has a lot to do with connection, both you know the people with whom you're watching TV, but also you know, we found that consumers want to have a connection not only to the content, but to the brand itself. So those are sort of the four sort of big buckets that go into that consideration for a streaming service. What we found in our research, and a lot of third-party uh, data will show this as well, is that there has been an increase in the willingness of people to subscribe to more streaming services. You know, our own data shows that people are willing to go up to something like five services. Um, I think, you know, for right now, there's availability of a lot of bundles and deals that allow you to sample something for basically for free or as part of some other service for the foreseeable future, you know, for a little bit of time. So I don't know if we'll see this world really settle in for a while to really understand the consumer trade-off until we get to that point where, you know, people have to sort of make decisions based on their overall entertainment wallet. Um, so, and I think that that's something we were just all a little premature when we were trying to predict what was going to happen there, because right now you can have access to all of this content without having to make those decisions. Again, there's a lot there, Julie, and I yeah. want to, <laughs> I want to go in a little bit deeper on some of the things you just said. So first of all, the notion of five services, does the limit occur because of time or wallet? I don't think it's wallet yet because um, we haven't really gotten there yet. I do think it's time. And I think it's just this, you know, people want to get value out of what they're getting and everybody wants to kind of streamline their lives too. So um, I think there's a point where everybody wants to try things and then it just takes some time where you get to a point where you're like, I don't know, do I really need all of this stuff? And I think it's those same four buckets that will weigh into those decisions. You know, am I watching this content? Am I getting what I need out of it? Um, and yeah, there is a limited amount of time in the day that people can watch television. So there will be some trade-offs there as well. Hulu has very unique access uh, to data on the value question. So I want to dive in there for a bit. Namely, Hulu has an ad-supported service and an ad-free service. Do you see consumers shuffling between the two and have you yet been able to get at what the key kind of drivers are for moving from ad-free to ad-supported or vice versa? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, you know, we're one of the few services out there that offers that kind of plan flexibility that we have ad-supported, we have ad-free, we have live, um, and we have a whole lot of add-ons that you, know, you can add to sort of make your own experience based on what you want. Uh, we find, you know, we still have consistently found that, you know, every day that people sign up for Hulu, more of them sign up for the ad supported service. And, you know, we think it has a lot to do with the price for sure. Um, it is cheaper than ad free. And we think it has also a lot to do with the ad experience that we're providing in that it's restrained. You know, we're not knocking people over the head with ads. We have a shorter ad load uh, than what they might have been accustomed to on linear TV and we deliver an experience that's relevant and personalized. And we think, as I mentioned before, you know, one that fits well with the viewing experience where we're leveraging all the data that we have to understand viewer behavior to build ad products um, that fit with that experience. Um, so I think that, you know, 
we do see movement between those products. It, you know, it depends on the time of year and what people want to do. Um, we do see movement where people go ad supported to ad free and back. Um, and you, you know, we love all of our customers. So we just, we, we want to encourage that kind of, um, ability for the consumer to get exactly what they need at that point in their year. I would assume that consumers are moving between the ad-free and ad-supported services, sometimes because of content. Content was your first point kind of on, on uh, amongst the value drivers. Um, during this time, there's been a, a shift, as you alluded to earlier, in terms of the kinds of content that consumers are, are going after when they're, they're viewing more during COVID-19. Can you talk about the relative value to Hulu between archived and original content for the stickiness of the service? As I mentioned before, you know, content is a big part of the consideration set. And it's almost impossible to meet the needs of every individual consumer sort of content experience. What we do know is that we need a large library. We have a large library. We have somewhere around 80,000 episodes of television available to to view at any point in time. We also know the importance of originals uh, and exclusives to our service. They're really important to any service. That's what drives people and for a lot of reasons to get or in a lot of circumstances to get a streaming service because I wanna watch this show that everybody's talking about. Um, the show that won the awards, the show that you know keeps showing up in my Facebook feed or whatever it might be. We try to be smart about making originals that are going to be groundbreaking, that are going to break through, that are going to get people to come to Hulu. And then once they're there, show them all the other contents that, that's there. And by the way, you know, in our marketing messaging, we certainly spend a lot of time talking about originals, but we also spend, you know, almost as much time, probably about the same you know, really showing the value of the brand, but also the depth of the library, because that's what's driving the engagement in the long run. That's what's getting people to continue to come back to Hulu. So we really strike a balance um, to try to do both, right? To continue to invest in those originals uh, that that drive subscriptions, that keep us top of mind. Um, And then we also make investments in licensed content to to, to round out that appetite that everybody has for a diversity of content. You talked before when you were uh, addressing the ad-free versus ad-supported environments. You talked before about um, Hulu's introduction and Hulu really has led the industry in this regard, introduction of new ad formats, new ad experiences. Can you tell us a little bit about how consumers are responding to some of those new formats that have been released, let's say in the last 18 months or so on Hulu? Yeah, this is a big part of the work that we do because again, like we, we um, appreciate and, you know, know the value of the ad supported ecosystem, right? It's, it's, you know, we're marketers, so we want to make sure that that's healthy and that we can continue to reach consumers. And we believe the same to be true for all of our advertising partners. So we also know that it was a, uh, industry that needed some disruption or really needed to evolve. Otherwise, we were just going to lose more and more people to places where they can watch TV without ads. So, you know, again, foundational to Hulu is this notion that we're reaching audiences and that we're providing choice and control in our advertising experience, much in the same way in the viewing experience. And we leverage our data to build ad products. So a couple of good examples, as you noted, over the last 18 months is uh, our pause ad, which we announced probably about 18 months ago now, um, which, you know, 
didn't seem revolutionary. It's basically a person pauses the show and you can use that real estate to show a commercial message. We did a lot of work on it though. One, we really want looked in the data to understand how often do people pause. And we found that in the ad-supported service, there's something like 35 million pause episodes a day because our, you know, people need to take a break. They're binging. They need to pause at some point to do something. Uh, so we were like, this seems like a great opportunity to get in front of a consumer. Um, we also did a lot of work ahead of time to understand what kind of format would work best there. We knew people didn't really want video or sound because that's what they were stopping, you know, the, the video for. Uh, so it's a static unit, but it's really, you know, we, our first two um, partners were Charmin and Coke, and they both made a lot of sense in the environment, you know, for, for both of them, for why you would pause your TV, get a snack, go to the bathroom, et cetera. And we've had a lot of partners since then. And it's been very, very successful and well-received both in the industry and by consumers. And then the other big one uh, that we did over the last year is our binge unit. So again, this is a viewing behavior that we saw really consistently across Hulu. And I think we all recognize this in ourselves. We define a binge as a session in which a person is watching three or more episodes of the same series in one session. Um, and our data team and our ad platform team worked to build a model that would understand when that was happening. And then we would deliver an ad experience that sort of fit within that context. So imagine like, oh, you know, you're settling in for another five episodes of, you know, fill in the blank. Why don't you order your pizza now? Or, you know, get ahead and do your taxes or we'll bring you the next episode ad free because you're listening to this message. So again, that's been really well received in the industry um, and by consumers as well. Okay, I'm going to bring us full circle here to talk about measurement again. <clears throat> what type of evolution should agencies and brands be on the lookout for uh, from Hulu uh, from a measurement perspective? So um, it's a couple things. I mean, I think we're really walking down sort of two, two paths here. So one is, you know, again, using the value that we have in our internal data that tells us a lot about viewer behaviors within our, um, our account holders. Um, and then the other is really an audience perspective because our first party data tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us who's watching. And we know that people watch TV together. They have for decades. Again, that's part of that, you know, sort of connecting with other people part. Um, so we've done a lot of work over the years with Nielsen, with Comscore uh, and others to really understand who those people are sitting in front of the, the TV at that moment. And we continue to evolve, you know, on both of those paths. Um, and obviously I mentioned before, taking all of that and combining it with all of the assets at Disney is really what's next on the horizon and having that sort of uh, full funnel, um, you know, which means understanding what all that inventory, what, what that media does from a branding perspective for awareness, for recall, for uh, you know how a person feels about a brand right down to what kind of action results when a person is exposed to a campaign across that media do they go to the store do they go by the car do they go to the website do they watch the show etc and that's you know also measuring along all of those business outcomes and i think you know ideally we want to get to a place where we can do both of those in the same you know campaign or the same time period because there's a lot more to understand these days about the decision path that consumers go through when they get a product, particularly in a world where there's a lot more direct consumer advertisers out there. It's been really interesting to understand some of the nuances and differences uh, that occur 
uh, depending on the type of client you're working with, the sort of purchase cycle that's involved. It's different for everybody. So we want to be able to provide, you know, more customized insights for every client. And it's not easy to do, but that's that, that I think is the ultimate goal. We look forward to seeing some of that in the coming months for sure. Uh, Julie, lastly, we sometimes like to ask our guests to leave us with a prediction. Uh, you know, and feel free to, to go big uh, with this one. So when you look forward five years from now and view the streaming landscape, what do you see? Uh, yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I've been surprised by what's happened, you know, over the last year, even in terms of, you know, this, this notion of people sort of following their favorite shows and all these new launches and the sampling that's happened. And, you know, I do believe we're, as more and more shift happens to streaming, I think we're going to get to a world that looks a lot more like the broadcast television world looked, you know, 10 years ago, where this is about a share shift on any given night. Some people are going to choose this service, that service, et cetera. And, you know, the world's going to settle into five or six or whatever it might be. Um, and it'll be interesting, you know, right now we don't have the, we don't have the ability to understand how people are kind of moving around like that, not from like a third party source, we could certainly do it, you know, through a lot of our own work and our own primary work. Um, but I do think that we're going to sort of settle in to that sort of different kind of world. And that's going to create a lot more differentiation between streaming services, we have to really get there where people understand the differences and to know where they want to go on any given night. And I hope, I feel like, you know, particularly uh, being part of Disney, having our bundle with Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, you know, and Hulu offers a ton of content. So we want to obviously take a lot more of that share. And I think we have a huge opportunity to do that. But that said, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of fragmentation of viewing because there's just so much content that people can watch at any given moment. And certainly that results in a lot of like niche viewing, which is great because it means that all kinds of shows get produced for all kinds of audiences. But I do think there will always and forever be this desire to have collective shared experiences. Those come from sports for sure and always will. That's always gonna be a really powerful vehicle for bringing people together. Uh, news, certainly big reality shows. I mean, people like having water cooler conversations and that can happen in a streaming world. Um, and, you know, that's part of, I think, um, you know, what will be a big change, you know, going forward with streaming is how do those get created um, and how do they manifest in that world? It's amazing how cyclical TV is. Um, frequently, yeah. what's old becomes new again and reinvents itself. Um, Julie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for joining us on Spotless. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Spotless. Be sure to subscribe and come back soon for another conversation about the future of television. For more information, you can connect with us anytime at spotless at triplelift.com. <laughs>